Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin. It's been a while. It has been a while. Good to hear your voice over the airwaves. I know. I almost forgot how to do this. I was struggling to set up my my machine and everything, but I'm so glad (laughs) that we're back in this space. I am too. I am too. What have you been up to? I have been uh, doing a lot of writing. I have been doing... A lot of uh, sitting around and uh, staring at the walls of my house. I have been doing a lot of reading when I have the energy to hold my eyes open. Mm -hmm. Now, are these new embodiment practices that you're stewarding? (laughs) No, they aren't. They are the results of me being diagnosed with COVID-19. COVID-19. The coronavirus gets even closer to us. Yeah, it does. And we'll tell everybody about this, my uh, my situation and my story in a few minutes, but um, after we've had a chance to catch up. But yeah, that's what I've been up to. What have you been up to? Well, <clears throat> I have um, also been doing some reading and um, I, I was very busy past couple weeks I had several different speaking gigs and a and a thing with the Frisk Museum here in Nashville and I found myself really struggling with the lack of spaciousness in my day and so mm. I'm really having to reevaluate how I spend my time because I don't want to just be producing for the sake of producing I want to be creating something and I need spaciousness to create. And so, yeah, I've been very busy, but, uh, you know, was on a couple podcasts, one in the UK, which I'm excited about. A guy that I connected um, with on Twitter, who also lives on the autism spectrum and is actually a four on the Enneagram with a five wing. And so I'm a five with a four You're wing. opposite. Yeah. So, uh you know, just been just been doing a lot of, I think, you know, like a lot of work, a lot of catching up, a lot of, um, you know, how do we make sense of what's going on in the world right now? And, and really wondering what do people need? That's how I've been spending my time. Yeah, you know, you and I are so, so different. And that way, I function best in a uh in an environment of um fast-paced uh you know what's next um mentality not because i want to stay busy 
but because of my um, sevenness on the Enneagram, because I am an extrovert, uh, because I have ADD, I need to be constantly stimulated. Yeah. And so this sitting around stuff uh, that came with my um, my illness was some of the some of the most brutal days from a from an and a like a keeping my soul nourished standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, you know, illness is illness, and and we care for our bodies and our and our um, our spirits at the same time. But I, I really struggled with the lack of busyness. And you and I are so very different in that way. You crave your spaciousness. I crave my my uh, busyness, but busyness in a in a in a way of um, not in a in a capitalist or a like supremacist standpoint, but just busyness in that that energy keeps my bones and my and my muscles flowing. So, yeah, yeah, I've been trying to continue to slow down um i had i was booked yesterday um until 9 p.m and and went to bed at 9 15 i just i just you know when i have things booked back to back um it sucks the life out of me yeah i don't i don't like that either but i also um I get very overwhelmed when I wake up and there's nothing on my calendar. Mm. Whereas I would sense without putting words in your mouth that you wake up to a day with nothing on your calendar and it makes you like sink deeper into this sense of peace and, yeah. And, 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 and comfort. It's not, it's not a good thing for me. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is where I know that I'm more of a contemplative person uh, I don't mind being on the streets and being active, but at the heart of what I think my vocation as theologian is, is that contemplation piece. And that requires a fair amount of spaciousness to be able to achieve. And, and when I get, when I'm back to back calls or gigs or whatever, it makes it very difficult to really sink into that place that I love so deeply. Sure. Well, listeners, we are grateful that you are back with us. We are sorry that we had to take a two-week hiatus and put a pause on the content of the Activist Theology podcast. But as I mentioned earlier, I was diagnosed with COVID, as was my partner, and the illness really did a number on me and made it so I, uh, you know, didn't have the capacity to, yeah. to record with, with, with Dr. Robin. And so we want to talk a little bit today about where we are right now in this, in the midst of this pandemic, what this new surge looks like. Um, but I also, you know, wasn't sure, Dr. Robin, if you wanted to, um, you know, ask me anything about my experience. If you were, you know, if you think our listeners could benefit from hearing my story. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I wanted us to talk about, and I think 
probably you can speak to this after being diagnosed is we're hearing a lot about community transmission and and the ability to con to um the ability to trace contact is becoming much more difficult and i know that here in tennessee community transmission was off the charts and i know that chattanooga y'all had a real surge and so i'm just wondering because because you you and mike have been very safe and very proactive about wearing masks and um sanitizing and right doing all the things right and yet you still contracted COVID 19. yes so we we are the type of people who um decided you know very early on that we were going to follow the advice of the medical experts that we were going to take the spring and shelter in place thankfully i work from home so my day-to-day didn't change much but mike's did in that he is in the medical profession and when his clinic was closed he was able to shelter in place and stay at home. But as soon as the clinic opened back up again, he went back into work. And um, but the clinic's protocols are also extremely safe, very, very um, comprehensive and, and really uh, guarded against community spread. We, you know, we're now all of us collectively are nine months into this journey with COVID and Mike and I haven't eaten inside a restaurant in nine months. We haven't, um, it, it, it makes me itch to even walk inside the front door of a restaurant to pick up to go food. We have largely, um, delivered, had, had food delivered to us. If we decided we wanted to eat something that wasn't in our, in our house, or we have, uh, gone to a very few handful of places that have outdoor seating where the two of us can, you know, sit uh, in most cases like 10 to 12 feet away from other people. Yeah. And, and, and have a meal um, that, that is prepared by, by others' hands. And that's eating outside? Yes, outside. Yep. And, and so would you wear your mask? Yep. While you're outside? Yes. Yeah. So, we uh, we wore our masks all the time. Yeah. If we if we left our home, if we were in our vehicle by ourselves, we didn't mask up until we opened the car door to get out. Right. If we were in our vehicle, if we happened to be in our vehicle with someone else, we were masked up the whole time. Yeah. The only place that we chose to kind of frequent and and go back into the world was this lovely little dog park that my Ruthie Bader goes to where all her friends are. It's an outdoor park. It is, um, it, it allows for social distancing in a way that, um, you know, gives us the ability to stand apart from people. Um, but even there, we were, one of a handful, and I would say three to four couples who 
wore our masks outside 100% of the time. People's perceptions here in Tennessee are that if you are outside, you don't have to have your mask on. And that's true from a mandate standpoint. However, you know, I mean, I, I tried to not feel frustrated in us receiving our diagnosis but there is something to be said for the, the level of safety and the level of precaution that we took every single day. And yet we were stricken by this virus um, in one way or another. Yeah. So it, it speaks to the pervasiveness of it. It speaks to its capacity to touch you, whether you are really, really safe outside the confines of your home or not. Um, and it speaks to the the level of flippantness that others have around their capacity to pass the virus, whether they are asymptomatic or not. There are seven of us in our little pod, our little like family pod here in, in Chattanooga and six out of the seven of us were diagnosed positive with, with COVID. Um, the youngest in our group um, who, and, and she is significantly younger than the rest of us. Um, she's legal, but she's significantly younger yeah. um, is the only one that didn't contract COVID but at the exact same time that we contracted COVID, she was diagnosed with both strains of the flu. <laughs> oh. So all seven of us are sick at the same time. It's, yeah. it's, it's obvious that we passed it to one another, even though we're all wearing masks all the time when we're with yeah. each other. Um, but yeah, we, um, we have, we have uh, weathered the storm of COVID and I, and I am, um, I am grateful that it didn't affect us more than it did. I will also say that I don't, I wouldn't in any way say that we had uh, minimal or, or simple cases. We were very ill. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, we have got to get our shit together. Uh, it, this, it's just not acceptable. Do you, you know, I know that y'all have been very safe. We have been very safe too. Do you think it's inevitable that, that we will all contract COVID despite the precautions that we are all taking or, or, or not? I mean, when I, when I think about the number of cases here in the United States and when I hear on places like NPR and MSNBC that places like Estonia and Norway have cases like 11 cases, six cases. Right. I wonder what are we doing wrong in this country or in our community? You know, Many, many will say, including the 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 leader of, of our the current leader of our country, that you know we have more cases because we test more. Mm-hmm. Well, we the United States has four point two two percent of the world's population. We are only 
we are less than 5% of the population of the world. Right. And yet the United States, as of today, has 19% of all the COVID deaths. Yeah. Those statistics alone should make us throw up in our mouths. Yeah. I mean, I, I am still so stunned at the arrogance and the narcissism of, of people, the, the complaints of COVID fatigue, yeah. the complaints of um, the holidays coming up, the complaints that, you know, masks don't allow for a full experience in community. Um, you know, walk a mile in the shoes of our first responders and of our respiratory therapists and of our critical care nurses and of our doctors, and then come talk to me about COVID fatigue. We, we have got to figure out how to get over our own the, 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 the worth we have placed on our individual freedom over the worth that we place on the lives of others. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know the answer to your question. I don't know if we will all be, you know, subjected in one way or another to a, a COVID diagnosis. What I can tell you is that we got very sick even after taking what we believed were uh, radical precautions and precautions that we did not see other people in our midst taking on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And we still got sick. Um, I, I am saddened by this country's lack of care for one another. And quite frankly, I'm pissed off that me and my little pod were, were, were doing good work in keeping others safe and keeping ourselves safe. And, and we still got sick. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean you know, now that there are a couple of vaccines that are emerging, now that now that you've had COVID and have survived, thankfully, will you get a will you get the vaccine? Is there is there a chance to be reinfected with coronavirus, or what, have you done any research on that? Yes, we have. So I mentioned that my husband, uh, that my husband, my partner, is in the medical field. He is not a human doctor. Um, I think some of you, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, know that he's a veterinarian, but he's still a scientist. He's a doctor. He's someone who uh, really uh, prides himself on understanding the the medical nuance of things like vaccines and immunity and, and that kind of thing. The jury is still out as to whether we will be able to contract the virus again. There are people, there are um cases in the United States of people that are suffering from COVID for the second time. Yeah. Some of those people are suffering worse than they suffered the first time. Some of those people 
are having very mild symptoms compared to their symptoms when they when they first were diagnosed. We will still get the vaccine. Yeah. We will. And I look at it a little bit like I look at uh, chicken pox and shingles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we both got chicken pox as kids. Yeah. Um, chicken pox and shingles come from the same um, virus strain. They affect um, people at, at different phases and ages in their life, but they're, they're similar in, in the way that they attack the body. It's recommended that people over the age of 50 get a shingles vaccination. Right. Because they are more susceptible to getting shingles, especially if they have had the chicken pox. Right. (laughs) And so I look at it a little bit like that. I mean, I am not in any way an anti-vaxxer. I fully understand the concerns that come with vaccinations and our our understanding of, of or our lack of understanding of long-term effects and how certain vaccines can, um, you know, can affect other parts of our body. Mm-hmm. However, we are incapable of fight. It, it is proven now, nine months in, that we as a as a as a human body are incapable of fighting this virus uh, without some kind of intervention mm-hmm. and and that intervention like it or not is going to come in the form of a vaccination mm-hmm. at this point had we done our job as people who were given data from scientists back in march had we done our job and had were if we were continuing to do that job the, the the fact that we are waiting with bated breath for word on vaccinations would not be affecting us now. Right. We would have seen a radical drop in cases. We would be looking at countries um, like the ones you mentioned. We would be looking like those countries mm-hmm. um, because we would have found the formula to negate this virus based on our capacity to follow rules and to be mindful of our interactions with one another. We don't have that cap. We don't have the capacity. Mm-hmm. We, we, we are too uh, self-centered and, and focused on our, our rights um, to, to follow the advice of medical experts. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, I mean, I, I know that we will be getting the vaccine um, I don't know at what point. Yeah. I don't know what will until we learn more. I don't know whether we'll be first in line or whether we'll wait a few months to see, you know, what what, what happens. Right now, it looks as though we are unlikely to be reinfected for as as for about three months. It is unlikely that we will get COVID again. Um just simply based on the, the the cyclical nature of the antibodies that our bodies are producing now. Yeah. You know, which means that, um, you know, we are, we can um, not worry about um, 
infecting, uh, being infected ourselves, but we still do have to worry about being carriers of the virus. Right. And so, you know, I mean, I'm still, I'm, I have friends who had COVID back in March and they're like, I don't, I don't have to wear a mask anymore. I can't get it. I can't pass it. I'm, it's like, that's actually, those things, your statements aren't true. Yeah. Your statements reflect your, your arrogance in, in feeling healed and feeling immune and feeling bulletproof and, um, and you're setting a bad precedent for others. Mm. So you'll continue to wear the mask. You'll absolutely. You'll continue to take precautions. What about the dog park? Because I know that I know that Ruthie is a big dog and needs to work out her energy. And you live in the city, and and you know I I've been by by your new house, and it's not exactly a yard right there. Right. And so, what about the dog park? Which which I have been um, to with you during this pandemic. And I wore a mask, you wore a mask, Mike wore a mask, Aaron wore a mask, but a lot of the people at that dog park were not wearing masks. Right. So this, this pod of seven humans that I, that I spoke of, um, we are dog park friends. We are friends outside of the dog park, but we are the people who text one another at a certain time every afternoon and say, hey, I'm headed that way if you want to come hang out. And we all end up being together, um, hanging out in the same corner, um, you know, our little our little gang of dog parents uh, at the dog park. Um, I have chosen to go back to the park. I also um, was very honest with the dog park manager. I let her know right away that... Um, we had both been infected, that there were more than just us that were infected, that it was possible that that infection happened at the park. Um, and they took the right measures to reaffirm their cleaning standards, their, um, you know, the, the, the way that they are asking us to, you know, stay a certain distance from one another. And so I, um, I have chosen to keep going and I don't know whether that's a good idea or not. Um, but what I do know is that if I, if I am going to choose to get fresh air in any way, um, it, it's going to be walking Ruthie around my neighborhood or it's going to be walking her to her park and letting her, you know, run out her energy for a little while and then walking her home. So I I have to do one or the other and I'm choosing to go back to the park. Um, You know, the jury's out as to whether that's, that's a good idea or not. So all of this COVID happening and your diagnosis also was happening at the same time as we are, Still waiting for a uh, for a president. <laughs> the shit show that is the twenty twenty presidential election. Yeah, right. So M- M- Mike and I were diagnosed with COVID the day after the election. We were diagnosed on November fourth, and so we uh, spent the large majority of the ten days that we had in isolation, um, waiting. <laughs> 
and watching and lamenting over Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, um, not, not in that order, but we, we were, um, we had no choice but to be glued to the television because other than the television, there was very little for us to do um, as we were laying around trying to, you know, keep our bodies from hurting. Yeah. Yeah. And now we have a president elect. We do. Who is not the current president. Right. Praise be to little baby brown Jesus. But our current president has yet to concede the election. Mm-hmm. I mean, do we think he's going to? I I mean, well, he's not conceded and therefore the transition has not, is not in, um, moving. Right. Now he, he and his people would say that he, that it doesn't matter whether he concedes or not, that they are just waiting on the certification of the votes before they, they allow the transition to happen. Um, I I mean, I call bullshit on that because we know that it is because the election hasn't been certified that he is able to continue to play this childish game of, well, you know, like, we'll know when we know. Right. It's it's preposterous. Yeah. And yet, did we think anything else was going to happen? Right. Right. So what so what do we do now? Um. I think that we are, so this is, this is where the pastor in me takes over a little. Um, you know, I think we are once again, you know, learning a a very hard lesson of patience in the midst of chaos. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the same kind of patience that the disciples and Mary had on Friday, from Friday to Sunday morning. It's the same kind of chaos that our black neighbors had during the civil rights movement. Um, it's the same kind of chaos and patience that our indigenous friends are still living with today, every day in, you know, wondering what and when will happen to their land at any given time. This, this lesson in patience in the midst of chaos is, I mean, you talk about people not wanting to wear masks. Now, now talk about people needing to be patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not one of my strengths. I tell you that all the time. You know yeah. that about me, but yeah. I, I think that that's what it takes. I think that's what we do. Some people will say that just having patience for this little bit of incremental change is insufficient. And, yes. And some people, some people will say, well, we've got this change in administration so now I can go back to sleep. Now I can rest. Now I can go back to regularly programmed scheduling. Right. The voters in Georgia know that they can't do that. Yeah. Um, you know, with a with a runoff election, you know, happening in a in a matter of months, um, there is no time to um, to waste in in Georgia. Um, but you're right. I think that you know. 
we are, it's this push and pull. It's this constant push and pull of, are we doing enough? If we aren't, what more should we do? And then is what is that thing that we should do the right thing for the moment of chaos that we find ourselves in? Mm-hmm. And I, and I, it, in some ways it, it incapacitates people in other ways. It makes them frantic mm-hmm. to, to do anything, to, to, to say anything to, you know, to, to, to be a part of any work. I mean, the number of people that are descending on the state of Georgia right now that are relocating themselves for this runoff election. I mean, Andrew Yang and his wife moved from from their home into the home of friends in Georgia so that he he as a former presidential candidate could be on the ground to assist with these two uh, senatorial runoffs. Mm-hmm. That level of franticness is equally seen as this uh, uh, lack of understanding of, of what we should be doing in these moments. Um, and the question is, is there a right answer Or are we to, as individuals and as organizations and as small communities of movement makers, simply to continue to do the work in the midst of the chaos, to continue to do our work in the world, because that work doesn't stop and it has no need to stop simply because we don't know how how a peaceful transfer of power is going to happen between now and the and the middle of January. And we've got to keep watching. Um, we've got to keep keep our eyes peeled. I, you know, I I wonder about all these people who are relocating to Georgia. Um, I heard that Stacey Abrams is only hiring people who live in Georgia, but. It takes a great amount of privilege to be able to pick up and move. Right. Um, and I'm just wondering what we think about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I am, I, I get it. I understand the desire to be a helpful presence. It's also rooted in supremacy culture. Mm-hmm. This, you know, this savior complex right. that I uh, I am needed and therefore I will go both because I have the privilege to do so and because I feel so confident in my capacity to be an asset that I I, I just I need to be there. Right. You know, when when we have seen single handedly that the mobilization and the registration tactics that were used by brilliant black, mostly female organizers in the state of Georgia handed Biden the presidency in the first place. Right. I mean, they know exactly what they're doing. They and and this machine is built in a way that. Um, if they have done it right, which I have no doubt that they have, it will withstand this several month delay mm-hmm. um, in order to, you know, in order to make sure that, you know, that uh, 
Raphael and John are, you know, are elected into the, into the Senate. I'm, I have said that, so the, the counties, so I am six miles from the Georgia state line Mm -hmm. where I sit right now. And I have said to a few organizer friends in Georgia, I will not come to help, but if you need anything done in the county, kind of right over the line, or if you need contacts, or if you want to be introduced to anyone there, please let me know. I'm happy to help facilitate that because this county that's right over the line from Chattanooga, I mean, it's a, it's a part of Chattanooga. It's mm-hmm. just in Georgia. Mm-hmm. That that is the extent to which I feel like I need to be a part of this work. Mm-hmm. I am I am heartened by the work of these black organizers, and they have done. They have done. A, a, I just I'm just so. I don't know. I'm I'm. I I don't even. I can't even. I can't use the word proud. I can't use the word stunned because it limits their, it limits my ability to, to have believed in them in the first place. But I, I am, I am moved. I am, I am moved in my bones in having watched the fruits of their labors come, come to fruition. And I am the last person that should be getting in the way of that. Um, for these next two months of, of work. One of the things that, that I have been seeing and also celebrating is the role of black people in this election. And to think that it was only in the 1960s that, that they were afforded the right to vote. Right. Which is just, just asinine like what in the world kind of country do we have that it's been less than a less than what's only a hundred years for for white women to have the the right to vote and it's just been since the 1960s for for black folks being able to vote and lest we think that we've really afforded them the right to vote we have afforded them legally the right to vote yet we have incarcerated such a large percent of them um and and have structured our laws so that because of their incarceration they are no longer eligible to vote anymore so i mean look like we we have we have figured out how to work that system (laughs) as well as any other you know system of marginalization and racism that this country has seen it is as capable (laughs) a system of minimizing black voices as any other but you're right we're we are you know we we have seen now 60 years of of black voice in our electorate and i I would be curious to know how how we feel that's gone for us. Well, where I was going when I started talking about this is will we will we love black people 
beyond the election? Will we steward connection with black folks beyond the election? Yeah, it's a good question. And and we we should be thinking um, black folks, black organizers, black queers, black women, all black people for the work that they have done. And also there are a lot of black people who are not into Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I mean, I think about, I was thinking about this just the other day about the Israel-Palestine issue. Um, Kamala Harris fortifies the, the, um, the Israeli occupation of, of Palestine. And so I really wonder, you know, how, how do we simultaneously think all black people for the for their labor and also hold the complexity that there are some black folks who see through this bullshit and are calling for a different political future, which I feel like I'm a part of calling for a different political future. Yes. How do we do that in a way that that doesn't undermine the labor, but continues to you know push us to a more better future in a way that brings us together i i don't know right and and that doesn't create a monolith out of ethnic and color-based generalities right you know, in such a way that the breadth of opinion by black voters is as valued as their willingness to step into the political arena and and cast votes in the first place. Right. Right. Yeah. I I wish I, I wish I knew um, the answer to that. I, maybe it's not an answer for me to know. Well, and and maybe it's maybe we don't have the question just right. Um, so it's, I think it's less about having an answer, but learning how to ask the right questions to steward the conversation in a way that that builds the kind of future that that we long to inhabit. And right. I, I don't I don't yet I don't yet know if we know what the right question is because you know as as we will see. Um, in a Biden administration, will we see caps on drug prices? Will we see um, student loan debt um, forgiven, which Warren is calling for because it could be a huge economic, um, it could be a huge economic burst if student loan debt was was forgiven. I mean, I mean, right. I have I have so much student loan debt, I'm unable to pay my student loans because of how much I make. Right. Yes. And so what if I didn't have that constraint? Could I, could I afford um, a, a different life? Now, and and I'm, not, I'm not saying to accumulate things, but would it afford me to move in the world at, at a different pace? And, and, I, and I wonder if other people are also thinking the same thing, right? right. I mean, I just think about the housing crisis that is this country – and, you know, you almost can't afford to rent in Nashville, much less buy. Right. Yeah, I, I am. I've been doing a lot of work over the last few weeks for um, a class that I've been a part of that 
looks at um, plagues and pandemics uh, and the eth- our, our call to ethics in that in those moments. And, and I think that it's this, it's this ethical understanding and, and the way that we look at our ethics that have to guide our principles surrounding democracy and our principles surrounding, you know, how we make policy and, and write law. Yes. I, I'm, I'm curious how you are feeling about some of the announcements that have been made so far around uh, Biden's picks for certain positions within his, his administration. And yeah, um, it's all very predictable to me. Um, I think Biden is trying to communicate a return to stability and there's no, there's no risks in who he's chosen thus far. Yeah. And, and so I think that this will this is like an appeasement in in, a, in the midst of a trauma induced reality. Um, Biden is appeasing the country. The, the question I have is can we move from appeasement to really doing the constructive work of rebuilding and that that remains unknown to me. Yeah I have been I have been heartened by the affirmation that so many women of color are being vetted for, you know, fairly significant positions within the administration. Now, you know, are, are these women as constrict conscripted to, um, their surroundings of whiteness that 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 they will that that their presence will be um, more than token more than a tokenism act on on Biden's part. I don't know. Right. right. I don't know the women, and I don't know um, the the jobs that they're going to be placed in. But I will be energized if this administration from behind the camera looks to be uh, diverse in, in, in the way that, in the way that people are appointed. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know what that will mean for any of us yet, but that has been a, that has been a, a, a good and a, and a, and a, you know, a, a positive thing for me to watch. 
I mean, the the fact that Biden has chosen a great amount of women of color to occupy the offices is history making. Right. But I don't want to I don't want to lose um I don't want to lose the specificity of what we need right now is is a better world. Yeah. We we don't need just um a diversity caucus. Sure. Because I think diversity is a code word for tolerance. So how do we move from just having a diversity caucus to actually getting shit done? And that will be my question for the Biden administration. Um, are they able to get shit done or is the, is the commitment to appeasing the American people, the priority? And when they get shit done, will that work be work that is uh, the, the needed work, the right. necessary work? Right. Or will it be work that, to your point, m- makes people feel as if there is a semblance of order and safety reestablished in the administration? And for whom? And for whom? Right. Right. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, the jury is still out. I, I'm watching very closely. Um, but I, I'm binge watching right now Axios News on HBO. And I really love how they do their interviews and how they're, they're creating journalism and, and really through storytelling, letting just letting the voice speak and really not putting a spit on it or anything. Um, so I've really been enjoying that. And I plan to keep watching Axios. I mean, if anyone has ever seen the Ben Carson interview, you've got to see that and you've got to see what this administration feels about the minoritized population and the, and the, and the ways in which, um, ben Carson and this administration um, does not feel like the government owes minoritized people anything. Stunning. And I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. So, so I say, go watch that video. Go watch that that interview um, because you'll you'll hear like we have a housing crisis in this country. And you will hear out of the mouth of Ben Carson that he doesn't believe he's responsible. He doesn't believe the government should be responsible for this housing crisis. And he doesn't believe that the government should be cleaning it up. You know what he thinks? He thinks that the government should build cages and put under home people in cages like what is on the border. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm always rendered speechless when I watch the, when I watch this outgoing administration speak to issues of, of rights and, and issues of equity. Yeah. Um, because there are no rights-based, there's no rights-based rhetoric included. There's no equity-based rhetoric included. It is all a a desire for the the smallest size government that that they can muster in a way that minimizes the most people in, in the process. And and relinquishes them from any responsibility for for the great amount of people living in this country. And it's just it's it's sad to me. It's sad to me that that this is the culture that we've created. Yeah. So uh we 
could be on the precipice of a of a two months um, inauguration of of a new administration. Uh, what do you think is going to happen to the members of the current administration on uh, I don't know January twenty first? You know, it's still left to be unknown whether or not they are going to leave on their own accord or if military presence will escort them out. I I don't know, but you better believe I'll be watching the news and be taking it in and we'll be talking about it on here. Yeah, I think I'm so I'm curious about their capacity to physically exit. But I'm also really, really curious about the way that crime and punishment rear their heads mm-hmm. um, as soon as this administration is is um, has has left the the safety relative safety of right. of the offices that they hold. Um, you know, I am in watching the the. attempt to reunite these families that were separated at the border families with their children. Um, and in talking about the healthcare and, and, um, mental health care that these children need and the way that the administration is hiding and, and holding on to those dollars too closely so that a, a judge actually had to come in and force them to, set up mental health funds for these children who have been separated from their parents. I am more fully convinced that the term war criminal mm. is uh, applicable to members of this administration, primarily Stephen Miller and, mm. and Donald Trump. And I am, I am not at all, I would not, I will not at all be surprised if the Hague uh, finds themselves involved. Mm. Um, it is it is tragic um, what this administration has attempted to get away with, and um, I will be I will I will lose more hope in in our our capacity to grow if I if I watch this administration walk away with simple. Uh, rich white man slaps on the wrist. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's not going to be acceptable for me. Mm. And that's coming from a pastor who believes that, you know, forgiveness is, is uh, offered to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've got a long ways to go before we reach the promised land. Yeah. And that's why we do this work. It sure is. Well, friends, thank you all for sticking with us. Thanks for coming back two weeks removed. Um, uh, Thanks for uh, holding a spot for us in your podcast feed, even though we didn't dump an episode while um, I was ill and recovering. Uh, Dr. Robin and I are in the process of scheduling some really amazing voices to join us over the next few months. We know that they are voices that you will want to uh, want to hear and want to engage with. And so as we leave you this week, um, just a reminder that um, the Activist Theology Project is 
100% supported by your gifts. Um, anything that isn't um, gifted, uh, Robin and I take care of ourselves. And, and for that, we are grateful that our privilege affords us that capacity, um, but it isn't always easy. Mm-hmm. So if you're able to give, please do visit kind uh, activist theology dot slash sorry activist theology slash kindful uh, dot com um, and uh, feel free to visit the website feel free to find us on socials engage with us tell us what you think about the episode um, rate us on your favorite podcast applications you can now text us do we have the number you can now text us we do. We um, are on an app called Community that allows you to engage with the Activist Theology Project from a texting standpoint. And what that means is if you text us your uh, number, you will be a part of our text-based announcement initiative. And, you know, we'd love to connect with you that way and, and to, you know, engage with you. And if you are interested in, um, in doing that, then you can text us at 615-436-5948. Again, that's 615-436-5948. And that will get you engaged with us on the community app. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you all. And we're going to keep going um, we may take a couple weeks off in December for the holidays, but we're gonna we're gonna keep keep on doing on and keep analyzing our present social constraints. Thanks for doing this work with me, friend. Yeah. See you next week. All right. Bye, y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com dot kindful dot com and click on podcast and remember activist and theology share a t the music you hear in this episode is hands dirty by our friends delta ray our sound editor and engineer is dan medley from 10 south sounds <laughs>